Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Bible study. We're continuing our series, Living from the New Heart, part nine. Tonight, we're talking about the perfect God and his perfect goodness. You can trust this perfect God, and you can trust his perfect goodness. You know, your concept of God shapes and influences you more than you can imagine. And I would say, if you're anything like me, your concept of God has changed throughout your life. You may have always believed in the God of the Holy Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the Father of Jesus Christ. Uh, you may have always believed in that God, but your concept of that God, your ability to understand him, I hope, has changed and grown and matured as you have grown older and served him longer. Uh, our concept of God frames our attitudes and actions and responses. What we think about God determines how we will act. It determines how we will think. It determines how we will react in certain situations. It doesn't mean that we'll always have the right attitude. It doesn't mean that we'll always do the right thing. It doesn't mean that we'll always react the right way. But it does mean that we will always know when we fell short of the standard. That's known as conviction. Remember, God is patiently working to conform us to the image of his son. That conformity is not comfortable at times. Um, it causes us some growing pains and causes us to come sometimes to a, to a realization about ourselves that we'd never known before. And so it can make us uncomfortable. Uh, but God convicts us, and that is guaranteed. So our concept of God shapes the way we think, act, and react. It doesn't mean we'll always get it right, but it means we'll always know when we get it wrong. Why? So that we can repent of it. Remember, repentance is ongoing. So that we can repent of it and change our reaction the next time. Change our attitude the next time. Change our behavior the next time. Now, some tend to see God as being as good to them as they are to him. I saw God this way for a long time. God will be good to me if I'm good to him. If I'm nice to others, God will be nice to me. If I put in my time, God will honor it. If I read the Bible, if I pray for a certain length of time, if I attend, if I give, then God will reward that with certain things. Now, that doesn't mean that God does not bless his children. But when we see God as only as good to us as we are to him, we, we can't see just how good he really is because our goodness will always fall short 
of his goodness. So we can't see God only as good to us as we are to him. Others think that God is just waiting for them to mess up so he can punish them. I saw God this way for a long time. God was just waiting for me to slip up. You know that Sunday school course, be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little ears what you hear. For the Father up above is looking down in love. I never really heard that last part, in love. I just imagined him looking down with a lightning bolt or something to uh, take me out when I messed up. And it was almost like God was just waiting for it. But God isn't doing that. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Still, others are convinced that God is largely disappointed with them <clears throat> or that they are constantly letting him down or breaking his heart. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we can't disappoint God. We, we can't let God down. We don't hold him up. We can fall short of his standard. Remember, he's patiently working to conform us to a standard. And oftentimes our attitudes, actions, and reactions fall short of that. Um, but that doesn't mean that God is constantly disappointed in us. Or largely disappointed. Or um, that we're always letting him down or breaking his heart. And then there are others who think God exists to wreck them, break them, test them, teach them. Does God break us or discipline us? Yes. Does he test us? Our faith is tested through trials and tribulations. God is not the tempter. He's not the cause of those tribulations and trials. If God's the cause of trials and tribulations, then he can't also be the cause of all good. Does God use the trials and tribulations? Yes. They test our faith to prove its genuineness. But God is not the tester. We need to understand that. We use that language a lot. God's testing me. In the trial, God is teaching you. But the test is the trial, and the trials come. The tribulations come. The bad times come. What can we learn from them? Well, if we get our eyes off the trials and onto Jesus, we'll learn a lot. If we get our eyes off the waves and onto him, we won't sink. Thinking of God in these ways, or other ways, prevents us from seeing him as perfectly good. It's hard to say God is perfectly good when we think that he's only as good to us as we are to him. It's hard to see God as perfectly good when we think he's just waiting for us to mess up or that he's disappointed in us all the time or that he's always testing us and breaking us or sending trials our way to teach us a lesson. If we think of him like that, we can't see him as perfectly good. Our vision of a perfectly good God is obscured and obstructed. 
as I mentioned, some of these things do happen to us. God does bless us as we are obedient to him. As we are faithful, he gives us more. He blesses us. If we do things his way and we honor him in all that we do, there is blessing that comes from it, yes. Um, God does point out our failures. He does, as we will see in a moment, let us experience the weight of our failures. But he's not waiting for us to fail. In fact, he's given us his grace to teach us how to not fail. It's our own stubbornness that causes us to fail. So those things have their place in our understanding and in our concept of God. But when we see just those things, it obscures our vision. It obstructs our vision and perception of a perfectly good God. So we've talked a lot about God's forgiveness and God's grace in this series. But we also have to talk about his goodness. Because remember, living at the center of his grace, forgiveness, and goodness is what creates the perfect atmosphere for growth and fruit bearing. So knowing that you're in a covenant of grace and forgiveness with God will only take you so far. Somewhere along the line, you're going to have to believe that the author of the covenant himself is inherently good and can be fully trusted no matter what you say or do. No matter how bad you are at times, you have to come to the point that God is still good. Even in the midst of your trial, even in the midst of your struggle, your pain, your loss, your grief, in the midst of your storm, God is still good. You're going to have to come to terms with that somewhere along the line. Or you'll never be able to see God as good and you'll, you'll never be fully at rest. We talked a lot about rest last week and that quiet stillness. You'll never be able to enter into the Sabbath that remains for the people of God if you don't see God, the author of this new covenant, the author and perfecter of your faith, as inherently good in and of himself. Romans 5 and 8 says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, look at this, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, look at this, we shall be saved by his life. We're forgiven by his death and saved by his life. It's no good to just be forgiven. You need to be saved. It's no good just to share in his death. You need to share in his resurrection. When we do, we are saved and raised to newness of life. And as John 10, 10 says, to fullness of life. 
A full life is living at the center of God's grace and forgiveness and goodness. The full life is a life that bears fruit to God. And a full life is a life that is pruned to bear more fruit. We often want to avoid the pruning shears because they hurt. But God comes along and prunes at times that we might bear more fruit. God is inherently good and he shows his goodness toward us and that he reconciled us while we were yet sinners. Before we even knew we needed him, while we hated him, he reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. That's an inherently good God, a perfectly good God that can be trusted. And God's goodness matters. It really does. God's goodness is always called into question. It's been called into question from the beginning. It's been called into question from the Garden of Eden until now. God's goodness matters. You know, things that, um, things that matter have great consequence. That's why Satan constantly attacks God's goodness. The main argument against God and Christianity is how could a good God do such and such? How could a good God allow such and such? God's goodness has always been called into question. So we need to settle the matter because his goodness matters. God is the ultimate and unchanging standard for good. The very fact that people have to ask the question, how could a good God allow, um, it suggests the fact that there is an ultimate and unchanging standard of good to begin with. If there is such thing as good, then there needs to be a source of good. God is both the source and the standard of all that is good. Right back to the Garden of Eden, we go. Adam and Eve rejected God as the basis of all goodness. Adam and Eve were deceived to believe that they could determine for themselves the difference between good and evil, that they could know it for themselves. That was, of course, the original sin, to deny God's goodness and to um, think that we could determine what was good and evil for ourselves. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3 and read the account of the fall. It's, it's a familiar story to us, but sometimes uh, we overlook it because of how familiar it is, but it's a powerful passage. We'll read these six verses together, together. Genesis chapter 3, 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. God made the serpent. All things by him were created. Nothing in heaven and on earth that was created was created apart from him. And so this servant, or serpent rather, was crafty. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say? 
calls God into question. Again, that's happening today. People are calling God into question, calling the word of God into question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So let's go back to Satan's lie. You see how he mixes a little bit of truth in with the lie? He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the trees? And so Eve falls into the deception. She says, oh, no, God said we can eat of all the trees but this one. Because he said if we do, even if we touch it, we'll die. Look at this. Or remember this. You shall not eat of it or even touch it. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you shall be like God, knowing good from evil. God is the source of all good, not the source of all evil. He knows the difference between good and evil because he is good. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit, she touched it, she held it, and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he took it, and ate it. And then verse 7 says, their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. It's wrong to think that the Old Testament is all law and no grace and the New Testament is all grace and no law. Here we see God's grace from the third chapter onward. The third chapter of the first book. The commandment was, don't touch it, don't eat it. Eve touched it, Eve ate it, Eve carried it to her husband who touched it and ate it, and they didn't die. Was God lying? No. God was being gracious. Things were just getting started, and he knew this was going to happen. That's why Jesus was slain even before the foundations of the earth. God knew this was going to happen. But if he was going to create sentient beings in his own image with free will... He had to allow for this to happen, so he makes provision for it when it does happen. Adam and Eve deceived themselves into thinking that they could determine what was good and evil for themselves. The chaos and conflict that followed Adam's disobedience is not God's fault. God did not overreact. People like to say God overreacted. He cursed the earth. He cursed the man. He cursed the woman. And now we're all paying for one man's sin. God didn't overreact. God is so holy and so perfect 
that this one act of disobedience deserved death, deserved eternal destruction, but because of God's grace, he allowed them to live. But something had to die in order for their nakedness to be covered. Later on, we read that, or in that same verse, after they saw that they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made clothing for themselves. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine those fig leaves lasting very long or covering very much or being very durable. It was their attempt to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. God comes along and clothes them with the hide of an animal. Something had to die so that they could be clothed, so that their shame could be covered. It's a type and a shadow and a foreshadow of Christ coming to die for us, not just to cover shame, but to wash it away. I'm getting off track. I just get excited when I talk about Jesus. The chaos and conflict that followed Adam's disobedience is not God's fault. God was the one that warned Adam not to eat of the tree. He gave them ample opportunity. However, as a result of Adam's choice, sin entered the world and death through sin, and that's what Romans 5.12 says. Through one man's disobedience, sin enters the world. But through one man's obedience, Christ's, sin is washed. Many people question how could a good God allow evil? The answer is because he is good and just. God has to allow evil because he created us with free will. He gave us a choice. We could obey him or disobey him. There's no obedience if there's no alternative. And so God has to allow it, but because he allows it, he also has made a provision so that we can avoid it and be free from its consequences. As a good heavenly father, God allows us to feel the weight of the consequences of our actions. That's what a good dad would do. He would allow us to feel the consequences of our actions. He would allow us to see how heavy it feels. Because he does that, it enables us to learn from our mistakes so that we can grow in our conformity to the image of Christ. When we learn from our mistakes, we learn the warning signs. We learn what to avoid. We know where not to go, what not to say, all these things. When God allows us to feel the weight of these consequences, we can actually learn from our mistakes. Are we so naive to think that because God is good, we only deserve good from his hand, even when we make bad choices? That's a naive view of God, I think, that we only deserve good from him because he's good. Anything we get from God is completely undeserved. Anything we get from him is as a result of his goodness and his grace. Our goodness can't earn it. It always falls short. 
And so I often ask that to people. Are you, are you so naive as to think that because God is good, you deserve only good from him? That you don't deserve to feel the weight of the consequences of your actions? Um, or that if you haven't put your sins on Jesus, that, that when you stand before him, you'll be able to show him some of your own works and think that they add up and equal to the sacrifice of his own son? You get what I'm saying there? When bad things happen, it doesn't change God's nature. He is always good, especially during crises and disasters. You can trust God's heart even when you don't understand his ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, a familiar passage. I'm sure we've quoted it a lot. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. Just because we don't understand his ways, just because we can't think his thoughts, it doesn't mean that he's not good. And it's been my experience that confessing the goodness of God, even in the midst of grief, in the midst of trial, in the midst of uncertainty and insecurity, admitting God's goodness in those times actually uh, brings me greater confidence, greater joy, greater peace than trying to figure out his thoughts and his ways. There's a, an old hymn or song that I'm sure you've heard. It says something like, we'll understand it better by and by. There's another song that says, further along we'll know all about it. Further along, we'll understand why. We're asking the why question now, but it's a question that we're not going to get an answer to because we won't understand it. We won't get it. Later on, we will be able to. And I think when we're able to, it won't matter because one glimpse of Jesus in glory all the sorrows, all the cares, all the toils of life will repay. I don't think we're going to see Jesus and then go, okay, now tell me why this happened. I, I really don't see that happening. I don't think it'll matter. And so we just got to trust that, that God is good, even though we don't understand him all the time, even though we can't think his thoughts and know his ways. He has told us that he is good, and we can trust it. People like to ask, where is God in crisis, in disaster? It seems like whenever we face disaster, someone is quick to say that it's God's judgment for sin. And then others will say, well, where is God? Where is God when when?" Children are abused. Where is God when uh, natural disasters happen? Uh, any number of things. You fill in the blank. But does God really hurl disaster and sickness at us because we sin? Remember when they brought... Um, 
the blind man to Jesus, and they asked him, Who sinned? His mother or his father? And Jesus said, Well, no one. Right? That's as a result of the curse. People are born with deformities and, and defects and diseases as a result of a, living in a fallen world. God doesn't send disaster or sickness because of sin. Does God cause bad things to happen in order to discipline us? Does God abandon us when bad things happen? The answer to all these questions is a resounding no. If he did, he wouldn't be good. If God hurled disaster and sickness at us because we sinned, or if he caused bad things to happen in order to discipline us, or if he abandoned us when bad things happened, then he could not be good. But you can trust God's presence even in the midst of a crisis because he is good. You can trust God when disaster strikes because he is good. You can trust God when sickness strikes because he is good. You can trust him that he will never leave you, that he'll never forsake you, that he's always with you. This is a common what about question. Like I said, when we talk this way, there's often, well, what about questions that arise. What about Second Chronicles 7.14? You know it well. You heard it a lot over the last few months after, or over the past 30 months and counting. Uh, people saying that uh, because of, uh, you know, COVID, God is judging America. He's judging Canada. He's judging the world for sin. And so uh, we've got we've to find a Bible verse that we can quote. Uh, and so let's go to 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. That's a good one. Let's keep quoting that. And let's, uh, let's keep praying and humbling ourselves and turning and uh, hoping that God will heal us. Well, hey, it's a good sentiment. Sounds nice. But it's missing the point. Let's go to Second Chronicles 7.14. I grew up uh, in, in a church with a prayer room that had this verse on a big banner on the wall. Maybe you did too. It's a great verse. It inspires us to pray. The sentiment is great. When stuff happens... Pray. It's good. But let's see what's going on. Let's discover the context here for a few moments. Let's put this one to rest so that we can have a good understanding of what's going on here. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, the context is the dedication of the temple. David, that famous king, the psalmist, uh, he wanted to build God's temple. But God said, you won't build it because you are a king of war. And if you build my temple, it's the first thing the surrounding nations are going to uh, show up to destroy. And you'll constantly be at war over that building. 
And so God said, David, I know your heart. I'll give it to your son to build. Your son will build the temple. During your reign, you gather all the building materials. And then when you hand off uh, the throne to your son Solomon, he will be a king of peace, a king of wisdom. And he'll, uh, he'll be at peace with the surrounding nations and he'll be able to build that temple to my glory. And so Solomon has uh, taken all of his dad's building supplies that he gathered and, and he built this temple for God. And now they're going to dedicate it. They're going to dedicate it. Look at uh, verse 4. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered, look at this. 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their post. The Levites also with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David, whenever David offered praises by their ministry, Opposite them, the priests sounded the trumpet, and all Israel stood. And look at this. And Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. And there he offered the burnt offering and the fat of the peace offerings before the bronze altar Solomon had made. Um, sorry, because the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the fat. Verse 8, at that time Solomon held the feast for seven days and all Israel with him and a very great assembly uh, from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. And now the word of the Lord is going to come. In verse 11, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. And all of Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house. He successfully accomplished it. In verse 12, the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. What place? Solomon's temple. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain... Or command locusts to devour the land? Or send pestilence among you? Why would God do that? Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, God said, if you disobey me, these things will happen. And so God says, when I send these things because of disobedience, here's what you can do to stop it. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal, hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Then my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to their prayer that is made in this place. What place? The temple. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house. What house? The temple. That my name may be there forever. You can't take 2 Chronicles 7.14 out and put it on an island and say, 
whenever I go through something bad or whenever something bad happens, I just need to humble myself and pray and turn from my wicked ways and God will hear and heal. It has one meaning. Now, scriptures have many applications, but only one interpretation. To know the interpretation, Julius, what three rules must we follow? Know the context. Know the context. Know the context. Those are the only three rules. If you want to understand the interpretation. Now, what's the application to this? Does this mean this is irrelevant to us today? No. Yes. Look at what I've written here. Before they could pray, the people had to offer sacrifices. Under the new covenant of grace, the final offering for sin has been offered. Believers have already humbled themselves at the foot of the cross, and their wicked ways have already been healed. And when it comes to geography, God healing our land, God is not concerned with one nation over another. God will conclude his plan for national Israel after the rapture. Indeed, he will. But God is seeking worshipers who would worship him in spirit and in truth in this new covenant of grace, not nations. Does that mean that we don't seek for our nation to be turned back to God? Absolutely not. We must call out to God for our nation. I want to be a voice. I want you to be a voice, this church to be a voice to our nation. Yes. But God is not so much concerned about one nation over another. He's concerned about hearts, about people. And when people turn their hearts to heaven, that's when radical change happens. So I wanted to touch on that because I know we've talked about it quite a bit. And, and we've been talking about how God doesn't send crisis. And, you know, we read that, uh, you know, in the previous verse, God says, when I send this and when I send that and when I command this and when I devour that. Well, again, that's old covenant. And that was as a result of Israel's direct disobedience to the covenant that God would send those things. And did God send them every time they disobeyed? No, he was patient. He waited, he waited, he waited. Over 480 years, he sent prophets to Israel saying, turn, 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 stop, stop following after the other gods, stop worshiping idols. After 480 years, God finally said, okay. That's why we're studying Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the prophet through whom God said, okay, have it your way. Uh, let me just pick up on this little Easter egg. You know, in our Jeremiah series, we've been talking about how Judah thought they'd always enjoy God's provision and protection because they had the temple. They got that from the dedication because God says, I've chosen this place for myself. Uh, and he says, I will heal. Uh, where is it? I've heard your prayers, chosen this place for myself. Uh, where is it? My eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayers of the people made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there all the time. 
So they thought, hey, we're good. We can do what we want. We've got the temple. God said his name was going to be here all the time. We don't have to obey. There's no consequences. We're good. We can worship God and we can worship Baal. We can worship God and we can worship Asherah. Uh, we can worship God and we can offer our babies to the fires of Moloch. Uh, all to keep the peace and all so that we can be comfortable. I'll save the rest of that for Sunday. Finally, perfect God, perfect motives. I see we got 10 minutes left or so. God's motives are perfect. God's goal isn't to kill people or to make them sick as a judgment for sin. A lot of people see God that way. Their perception of God is that his goal is to, to, to make people sick, uh, to kill people, to judge people for their sin. I need to remind you tonight that sin has already been judged. Let's go to a familiar passage, John 3, 16 to 18. John 3, 16 to 18. I'm in the ESV here. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You, you see how you, you keep reading and we, we keep learning more? That's why I say you can't take verses and make them islands unto themselves. Now, I mean, John 3.16 is a, is a pretty good candidate for an island verse. But even it can't just exist by itself. Because it says, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, what does it mean if we don't believe? Well, we keep reading. Jesus didn't come to condemn but he came to save. Oh, that sounds like we're all saved, right? The universalists like to quote this, the people that don't like to point out sin or, or mention sins that the Bible mentions. They say, oh, Jesus didn't condemn. Okay, no, he didn't condemn. Why not? Keep reading. Whoever doesn't believe in him is condemned already. Jesus didn't need to add more condemnation. God already pronounced it. The judgment was already made. That's why he came. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light. God's motives are perfect. His goal isn't to kill. His goal isn't to make people sick or judge them for sin. Sin's already been judged. Look at verse, or chapter 16, verse 11 of John. Okay. 
All right, let's go back to uh, verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, people like to read John 3.17 and say, oh, Jesus didn't come to condemn. We're all good. Okay? John 16.11, or 16.8. When Jesus comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He doesn't condemn. He doesn't need to. They're already condemned. What's he going to do? He's going to convict. He convicts concerning sin because they don't believe. He convicts concerning righteousness because he goes to the Father. And, or sorry, this is talking about the Holy Spirit when he comes. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Sin's already been judged. The penalty's already been paid. Look at Revelation 5.9. I love this. I try to quote Revelation as much as I can. I used to be scared of it. Not anymore. You grew up scared of Revelation? Scared of the rapture? Listening for the footfalls at night when you were asleep? Wondering if you were left behind because you saw a scary Christian movie? Look at what the saints are singing in heaven. They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Sin's been judged. The penalty for sin has been paid. Now God is actively seeking to seek, or actively seeking to save everyone and anyone who will call upon his name. That's what God is doing. He's seeking to save those who would call upon him. You can look up those scripture references at a later time. You can trust God's motives. He just wants to save you. He wants to keep you. He wants to satisfy you. Because he's perfectly good. Finally, we live in a fallen world, but we have a sovereign God. Job 42.2. I wish I could quote that for you, but let's go to it. Let's go to the wisdom book. So we have um, right before the book of Psalms. Job 42. Job is the oldest book of the Bible, was likely the first one written, which means people have been suffering from the beginning. So you're not alone in your suffering. But at the end of the book, Job confesses this to the Lord. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God can do anything and everything. Nothing is impossible for him. God is not the author of disaster. Everything bad that happens is as a result of the curse of sin that came through Adam and Eve's disobedience. I love this phrase, God is not a death dealer, he is a life giver. We can't see God as a death dealer. 
God doesn't even send people to hell. People send themselves to hell for refusing to believe on the one God sent. God constantly calls and people constantly close their ears to the sound of his voice, constantly resist his pull towards the foot of the cross. God is not a death dealer. He is a life giver. Even when we read the Old Testament and God sends kings to war to kill everyone and everything and leave nothing behind, it's not because he's a death dealer. He is a life giver. He promised life to that nation of Israel to preserve them and to keep them and to protect them until the time when through them a Messiah would come to bring salvation to every tribe and nation and tongue. God is sovereign over his creation and his sovereignty is never threatened. It's not threatened by your failures. It's not threatened by your questions. It's not threatened by your doubt. It's not threatened by evil. It's not threatened by any force of darkness. God is sovereign and his sovereignty is never threatened. And neither is our free will threatened by God's sovereignty. We don't have to worry that God will take our free will from us because he is sovereign. Because as Joel, or sorry, Job said, I know that you can do all things. Yes, God can do all things, but there are things that he will not do. And one of the things he will not do is impose his will on us. He has given us free will, and our free will is not threatened by his sovereignty. But there's a great consequence to not joining with Jesus in the prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Because when we live our lives for our will, it ends at the end of a broad path and a wide gate. God is supremely perfect and omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is mighty to save to the uttermost, and his heart is always toward his people. That is something that we can celebrate, and we must never hesitate to celebrate. You can trust that even though we live in a fallen world, its sovereign creator has redeemed it from the curse and has ransomed people to himself by his blood. You can put your trust in God, and when you do, you will find that he is perfectly good. <laughs>